0: This episode of Right's Up was recorded on 18th of April 2020. Government responses to the COVID-19 pandemic are changing daily, and so this interview is off its time. To learn more about the developments in India's response to the pandemic since this episode was recorded, please see the accompanying show notes. Welcome to Right's Up. A podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. We are doing a three-part podcast series on the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's episode focuses on the response of the Indian government to the pandemic. It looks particularly at the human rights implications for the vulnerable and marginalized in India. I'm Gauri Pillai and today I'm speaking to Professor Kalpana Kanabiran, who is a Professor of Sociology and the Director of the Council for Social Development, Hyderabad. She has worked extensively on understanding the social foundations of non-discrimination, structural violence, and questions of constitutionalism and social justice in India, with a specific focus on gender, sexual minorities, caste, adivasi and indigenous rights, and disability rights. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected all of us in many ways. States around the world have imposed restrictions of varying levels of stringency to control the spread of the virus. The central government in India introduced a nationwide 21-day lockdown on 24th of March 2020. The lockdown saw an almost complete restriction on the movement of people and the closure of all establishments except those providing essential services. India's lockdown has been described as the world's biggest coronavirus lockdown and the harshest coronavirus containment measure in the world. The lockdown was declared with a four-hour notice period. It has been extensively reported that the impact of the lockdown has fallen most heavily on those most vulnerable. Professor Kannabiran, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me to have this conversation, Gauri. Absolutely. So my first question to you is about the very framing of the discourse around the pandemic. In your opinion, why is it important to talk about rights when talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, which has otherwise primarily been seen as a public health crisis? Do you think there is a tension here between the rights of individuals and the interests of the state in preservation of public health?
1: To open up the framing of the discourse, Uh, I would like to begin with Prime Minister Narendra Modi's address to the nation on the 14th of April 2020, when the lockdown was extended, which opened with the following words, and I quote, the constitution of India speaks of we the people of India. Who are the people of India? The demonstration of our collective strength on Baba Saheb Ambedkar's birthday is our best tribute to him, unquote. This is the first time he was invoking the constitution in the context of Corona. And importantly, the invocation was on Ambedkar Jayanti. And this serves as a springboard for us to examine rights, state responsibility, citizenship, and the constitution in pandemic times. The foregrounding of the opening lines uh, of the preamble, we, the people of India, frames a core concern for us in terms of citizenship rights and state responsibility, not state interests. And I do wish to mark the difference between these two. COVID-19 and the tumult it has brought in its wake needs to be seen through the lens of the constitutional commons, which belongs equally to all. This means, as a starting premise, that the most vulnerable and the most precarious have a prerogative over state resources and state protection on every count. For after all, when we speak about substantive equality, is this not what we talk about? So as a first step, what we need to do is to cut through the universalizing discourse around the COVID-19 pandemic and to recognize that it spreads its tentacles unequally across the country, the lives of the poor, rural, urban, forest-dwelling, itinerant peoples matter. The lives of migrant workers matter. The lives of the homeless matter. The lives of wage workers matter. The lives of persons with disabilities matter. Muslim lives matter. Dalit lives matter. Adivasi lives matter. The effects of the public health emergency that COVID presents aggravates an existing and ongoing emergency that these communities have had to maneuver on a daily basis for decades. The lives of medical and health professionals and care workers engaged in testing, treatment, and care matter. They have been rendered precarious by the systematic dismantling of public health systems in the country and the consequent ill-preparedness of governments, lacking in capacity and capability to handle a crisis in this scale and i really think that the genesis of the problem that we are facing lies here
0: thank you for framing the debate in those terms do you think we should also locate the debate against the larger socio political context in india beyond the narrower confines of the pandemic itself within
1: this larger uh, scenario I think we also need, when we, especially when we talk about rights and state responsibility, we also need to make a specific uh, mention of Kashmir. We can't forget that when the COVID-19 lockdown happened, Kashmir was already reeling under a nine-month lockdown post abrogation of Article 370. When I made a trip to Kashmir as part of an all-women team in early February, what we found was that the lockdown post-abrogation had completely decimated jobs, incomes, there was a distress sale of land and assets, and the entire medical system, which was at one time robust, was in a shambles because of no internet connectivity. So on top of this, what does the lockdown consequent on COVID-19 do to Kashmir is something that really merits a specific, uh, you know, a specific focus. The lockdown also calls up other kinds of vulnerabilities and other kinds of vindictiveness. Uh, that uh, derogates on rights. And I refer specifically, for instance, to the fact that G.N. Sai Baba is accused under the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, and he is in prison with multiple disabilities. And we are talking about releasing prisoners from prisons during the pandemic. We have people like Anand Teltumbre and Gautam Navlaka who have been taken into custody while the pandemic lockdown is on. And in fact, the NIA sought the permission of the court on the 14th of April, the day the prime minister addressed the country, and I quote, to use handcuffs on Anand Teltumbde to avoid physical contact with the accused amidst COVID-19 pandemic and the spread of novel coronavirus, unquote. So you can see that this, You know, the the ripples of the rights derogations uh, that are apparently consequent on the pandemic uh, really have connections back and forth that spread far out. And and we need to, uh, you know, somewhere account, therefore, for the larger context, the larger political and social context within which the pandemic lockdown has happened.
0: In your response, you specifically highlighted the rights violations that have been occurring in Kashmir and the arrest of human rights defenders like Gautam Navlaka and Anand Tel For our global audience, could you perhaps talk a bit more about the context surrounding some of these issues?
1: On Kashmir, uh, uh, Article 370 of the Constitution, which provides uh, autonomy um, uh, to Kashmir and recognises autonomy in Kashmir, uh, was abrogated on the 5th of August 2019, uh, and the state of Jammu and Kashmir uh, was split up into three uh, union territory uh, in, into two union territories, uh, Ladakh uh, and Jammu and Kashmir. Um, and uh, consequent on the abrogation of uh, 370. Uh, You had uh, several of uh, the mainstream political leaders uh, in Kashmir taken into custody under the Draconian Public Safety Act. But it wasn't only the leaders who were taken into custody. There was a large section of uh, youth, particularly, uh, and some very senior lawyers who were also placed under detention uh, under the PSA not only in jails in Kashmir, but also in prisons in Delhi and in Uttar Pradesh. And uh, the, the lockdown in Kashmir uh, bolstered the military occupation uh, in the region and was accompanied by uh, a shutdown of Internet. On Gautam Navlaka, Dr. G N Sai Baba was, of course, arrested uh, earlier. Uh, and uh, Gautam Navlaka and uh, Professor Anand Teltumbde were arrested on the 14th of uh, April under the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act um, on uh, charges of uh, uh, plotting uh, to assassinate the prime minister or, and collaborating in Maoist activities. Uh, and uh, the uh, argument. our argument as human rights defenders has been that these are completely unsubstantiated charges and uh, that the FIR should be quashed because there are several discrepancies in the FIRs. But despite that, uh, both Gautam Navlaka and Anand Teltumde were taken into custody on the 14th of April. So uh, this is uh, the kind of context in which I raised uh, these issues.
0: Thank you for that. Um, So now to just sort of specifically focus on the lockdown, something that you mentioned in your previous response was that we should take into account the fact that the prerogative for resources should be for the most vulnerable and the most precarious in India. And as I said earlier, the lockdown has been criticized for having an especially adverse impact on this very set of people. So my question is, is there something specific about the socio-economic context in India, which has resulted in this kind of an impact flowing from a lockdown?
1: What has happened as a result of this lockdown is that the rights of uh, the working poor the non-working poor and the vulnerable have been grossly violated in the very manner in which the lockdown was first announced with four hours notice and then extended with no notice. And in the abject neglect with which they were treated by the state in the first few days of the lockdown. And we saw several images of this in the media. We have particularly searing accounts uh, and details from Delhi Uh, both from communities that were affected by the recent uh, violence in Northeast Delhi in in February, where Muslims especially were targeted for mass violence, and uh, also from the exodus of migrant workers. Um, Just to uh, look a little more closely at what this vulnerability really means, uh, I would point... Uh, towards uh, the work, uh, a recent uh, article by economist K.P. Kannan uh, who maps the worker population uh, for us uh, in the light of the implications of the COVID-19 lockdown for the working poor. Uh, His estimates of 2018 uh, show us that out of 461 million workers, Uh, 92 million are designated as belonging to the formal sector. All the rest belong to the informal sector. Even of these uh, 92 million in the formal sector, 49 million are informal workers in the formal sector, that is contract workers, temporary staff, etc. Which means out of 46, uh, out of 461 million in 2018, just about 10% belong to the formal sector. So, we are talking about a, when we're talking about the dispossession of uh, the working poor and the vulnerability of the working poor, we are really talking of very large numbers. So, when you say lockdown and stay indoors, and I will you know, draw a Lakshman Rekha, they, we're talking about a people who have no choice but to stay outdoors, to use uh, Sanjay's words, and to live 10 to a room and to be mobile as a livelihood strategy. Workers in agriculture, artisanry, street vending, and construction comprise the largest section of the workforce, and this is entirely informal. It's no accident or coincidence that these workers belong to the most vulnerable sections, Dalit, Muslim, Adivasi, for the most part. We also know from other work, for instance, the work done by Rita Jyoti Bandhopadhyay, 40% of the urban population lives in informal settlements in urban areas. So this is what he calls the re-ruralizing of the city while remaining invisible in the city. Urban migrants, uh, to refer to other work on uh, in, in this area, uh, are never completely cut off from their Uh, roots in their villages, Uh, Tariq Tachil, for instance, calls it circularity, where several times a year they return to the villages. So the the, uh, circular movement between village and city is something that they depend on. And it is something that keeps them going because the city is never home. It is the village that is home. So when you suddenly lock down, work sites get shut down. Um, Landlords demand payment of rent, and you have no wages to pay the rent with. Um, You don't just stay put. The the natural impulse is for you to go back home so that you can actually survive. But there's no way of going back home because there is a complete transport shutdown. And while we had evacuation of people who were uh, abroad, and you had evacuation of foreigners from India... Uh, For the working poor, there were no arrangements made. So vulnerability is also exacerbated by uh, a very skewed uh, uh, concern and a very skewed uh, approach uh, to redress uh, that is actually weighted against uh, the working poor.
0: I'd like to pick up now on something that you said earlier about how we need to cut through the universalizing discourse around the poor and the vulnerable. And I think we agree that people in poverty are not a homogenous class of persons. So has the lockdown sort of exacerbated the disadvantage faced by people in poverty with intersecting identities, whether it be religious minorities, women, children,
1: Yes, certainly, and I think the, uh, you know, the, the focus has to be on intersecting vulnerabilities. Um, the fact is that the largest number of people who have been affected uh, are uh, Muslim, uh, Dalit, uh, Adivasi, uh, for the most part. Uh, among them uh, particularly among adivasi and dalit communities women uh, women migrant workers uh, are uh, a, a very large uh, segment but what has in fact uh, come up really strongly uh, in you know after the lockdown uh, is the targeting uh, of muslims uh, Uh, which has been extremely troubling. And this targeting of Muslims uh, in so many different ways is cause for concern. Uh, There are fake news reports and incitement by a stridently Islamophobic media uh, that used uh, terms uh, like Corona Jihad, Corona Terrorism, Islamic Insurrection, Corona Bombs, uh, in shows on COVID-19. Uh, and the Supreme Court refused to intervene to censure these news agencies, saying that it did not wish to gag the press. The term that it used was gag the press. Uh, and, and, and we know that uh, this is not, uh, you know, th- this is not a free press. Uh, uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the terms and these programs. Uh, are actually, in fact, an incitement to violence.
0: From what you've said so far, it is becoming increasingly clear that this pandemic cannot be viewed as an isolated health crisis. And in fact, it sort of maps on to existing fault lines of inequality in Indian society. It has been argued that the lockdown violates the rights of individuals and Article 21 of the Constitution of India, which guarantees them the right to life and personal liberty, including their right to livelihood. It's also been argued that the lockdown violates their rights to equality and non-discrimination, because it disproportionately impacts certain groups of people. In this light, do you think that the lockdown meets the standards of the proportionality test which requires that there be a balance between the extent to which the right is infringed and the object sought to be achieved by the state?
1: What does not meet the proportionality test is the means by which it was effected. It was an arbitrary decision, it was not transparent and totally lacking in empathy. There is no justice in saying at 8 p.m. that four hours hence there will be a nationwide curfew and that it will last for three weeks. The positive measures taken uh, with the well-being of the largest section of people ought to have been spelt out to the smallest detail. There was no dearth of time, no dearth of resources or access to all forms of media, most of which are by now totally controlled by the government. So the proportionality test for me uh rests both in the means, that is the process, and the end, the measure. We can only address the question of the proportionality of the measure when we have settled the question of the process. And we have a repeat of the process on 14th April, despite the extreme hard- hardship imposed the first time. So was the lockdown necessary? Let's assume it was necessary. Uh, does it meet the proportionality test? No, it doesn't in its modalities.
0: Right. So do you think when you talk about modality, something that we should consider in, in our analysis of proportionality is the kind of mitigation measures that have been put yes. in place uh, to mitigate the impact of the lockdown on the poor. And yes. and the central and state governments have, have put in place such relief packages. So can you maybe comment and maybe some of the strengths and shortcomings of these relief packages when, when we look at it through a rights lens?
1: Yeah, um, after the lockdown was announced, practically all state governments and uh, the central government um, put together uh, not just relief packages, but also um, administrative measures to alleviate uh, distress, uh, to provide support and so on. And uh, I looked at close to uh, 500 uh, GOs and notifications uh, spread across all the states uh, and the central government. Uh, there are some uh, common elements across all the states, but then there are specific, uh, you know, the, there are certain specific measures and modalities that uh, stand out. And I think uh, both in terms of recognizing the centrality of the Directive Principles, Part 4 of the Constitution, um, and in terms of uh, putting that out, uh, rolling that out in terms of state action, uh, the Kerala government is a front runner. Uh, as early as 25th March, uh, we have a geo passed by the uh, a government order passed by the Kerala government, uh, which is an extremely detailed order that sets out a range of guidelines on food support, uh, empowering local self-governments, uh, provision of uninterrupted essential med- uh, medical services, services uh, to persons suffering, for instance, from cancer, diabetes, heart disease. You have uh, specific uh, income and uh, food support for transgender persons and shelters for them. But in terms of uh, you know what kind of uh, state actions, not limited to relief, uh, that might uh, that that one needs to think about. Uh, practically every state has. Uh, guidelines on the release on parole of prisoners uh, in order to decongest prisons. Now, in the state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, after August 5th, uh, a number of people were detained initially in central jail Srinagar and then transported to Agra and Ambedkar Nagar in Delhi. Now, these prisoners have been released. The Supreme Court order very clearly says that Prisoners should be provided decongested transportation back home in the lockdown period. But now I know of more than a couple of instances of families of persons who have been released in Agra who are required to take passes and hire private taxis that cost up to 30,000 rupees to go all the way to Agra and fetch the prisoners back. These prisoners were taken to Agra by air by the police.
0: I also have a question about the legislative framework through which the central and state governments have imposed this kind of lockdown and the other measures surrounding the crisis. So from what I understand, the lockdown was declared by the central government under the National Disaster Management Act of 2005. And several states have invoked the Epidemics Disease Act of 1897 to take various measures. And both these legislative frameworks seem to really discuss the nature of powers given to a state to manage a disaster or control an epidemic. So in your opinion, how adequate are these frameworks when assessed from a human rights perspective?
1: In February 2017, uh, the government of India circulated uh, a draft of the Public Health uh, Prevention, Control and Management of Epidemics, Bioterrorism and Disasters Bill, 2017. Uh, This was a bill that was meant to repeal the Epidemic Diseases Act of 1897. There is much work on the Epidemic Diseases Act, especially its workings in colonial India. Uh, And there is no doubt that it is an extremely draconian legislation which needs to be repealed. However, any act which replaces it, Uh, must be firmly located within the constitutional framework and it must integrate human rights and public health concerns seamlessly. On this count, the public health bill falls short uh, because it fully reproduces the authoritarian writ of the state. My point in even alluding to the alternative to the Epidemic Diseases Act is to underscore the absence of an alternative to the Act. So it is a default setting that goes against the public interest and the common good. Now, that said, it is still possible for state governments to frame regulations under the Act. We have several governments that have done that, in fact, specific to COVID, uh, that integrate human rights concerns in the implementation of the Act. In fact, that is really the only route uh, before us today. Well, although some states have uh, framed regulations, the test lies uh, in the integration of human rights standards. The brevity of the Epidemic Diseases Act, four sections in all, uh, can be seen as a boon by what I would like to call an insurgent administration. It leaves the field open for state governments to devise their own modalities and designate the requisite resources in terms of finance, personnel, and institutional mechanisms, because nothing is prescribed under the Act. It is possible, therefore, for a state, through administrative and executive empathy, to write the Constitution into its implementation taking on board the concerns voiced by epidemiologists, public health professionals, and human rights advocates in the context of the 2017 bill. The second uh, legislation that has been invoked uh, by the center is the National Disaster Management Act 2005, which really occupies a very different administrative and legislative space. Simply put, an epidemic or pandemic is not a disaster and cannot be treated as one. By that token, the public authorities responsible for handling and mitigating disasters, namely the Ministry of Home Affairs, is not the authority that should oversee state action in a pandemic context. However, that said, the structure of the NDMA is useful to replicate with reference to the implementation of the Epidemic Diseases Act in the current context. I must stress that I'm not suggesting this as an enduring solution, merely as uh, one that we can possibly explore uh, given the absence of
0: options before us. So, now moving on, let's talk about the role of courts. What, in your opinion, should the role of courts be, and what degree of deference should courts grant to the state? The
1: question, really, for me, is not so much one of the degree of deference that courts should grant the state, uh, but the degree of empathy the court demonstrates towards those who suffer the multiple aggravated consequences of this lockdown. That is really where the focus should be. The court need grant no deference to the state. When arbitrary state action has triggered an unprecedented crisis, This was an opportunity for the court to set this right by directing the state to take specific actions on a clear understanding that the enjoyment of Article 21 rights of the dispossessed citizen hinges on the enforcement of its fiduciary duty by the state under Part 4. So this, to my mind, ought to have been the role of the court
0: to what extent do you think that the courts in india have actually shown this kind of empathy to the rights of the marginalized and vulnerable i
1: find that uh, there are uh, you know that, that there is a, a structural problem um, with the approach of the court uh, in covid-19 jurisprudence and um, i see the problem as threefold uh, the first is a troubling uh, lack of judicial empathy uh, for the working poor of this country, on whom the country is utterly dependent. Uh, And I will take an example. In response to a plea uh, to ensure payment of wages to migrant workers, uh, the Chief Justice of India asked the petitioners, and I quote, why wages are required when meals are provided by the government. And uh, in another petition, the court even went to the extent of taking on board the state's argument that the exodus was caused by rumor mongering and fake news. So, to not be able to empathize with the situation that workers are in and uh, to pose questions and take on Uh, you know, uh, to take on uncritically status reports submitted by government is very, very deeply problematic to my mind. Um, There is a second uh, part to this as well, which is if the the first part of it has to do uh, with judicial uh, empathy, uh, the second is the reluctance of the state, uh, of the court to hold the state to account. So, for instance, when uh, television channels of a certain kind um, you know, in their uh, televised uh, programs used extremely um, insight-ridden phrases that I have already mentioned earlier and I don't want to repeat, uh, and there was a petition before the press uh, directing news channels uh, "Not to resort to what amounts to incitement. Uh, the Supreme Court then says uh, that uh, it, it does not uh, wish to gag the press. Uh, the, the third part uh, of uh, you know, my uh, disappointment, shall you say, um, with uh, the way in which uh, the court has uh, responded, is uh, its unwillingness uh, to explore a different idea of justice that is grounded in the Constitution and yet informed by the aggravated suffering and harms that the pandemic and the lockdown has imposed disproportionately on the poor. It's not that we don't have reports, we don't have work uh, that will assist the court in, uh, you know, uh, coming to an evidence-based uh, uh, conclusion uh, and crafting justice differently uh, is it's not a huge step. It is well within the writ of the court to do it. Uh, so, uh, in a sense, uh, for me, um, the solution really lies uh, in our collective wisdom Uh, based on scholarship.
0: Thank you for that. And I think your point about crafting this new idea of justice based on constitutional values kind of brings me very well to my last question, which is sort of looking into the future and wondering or thinking about what are some of the lessons that we have learned as a country from the COVID-19 pandemic regarding measures that we can put in place within the law and the role of human rights in avoiding a humanitarian crisis of this nature.
1: The first and most important point to me is that we never lose sight of the fact that it is the workers who make or break this nation. They're already reeling from decades of mistreatment and callousness. And to just fling them into destitution, no matter what the emergency, is unacceptable. When the right to privacy was declared as a fundamental right, the judgment of Justice H.R. Khanna in ADM Jabalpur was resurrected in eloquent terms by the Supreme Court. This, let's remind ourselves, means that fundamental rights cannot be suspended even in conditions of emergency. That's the bottom line. How have you forgotten that? The, the jurisprudence of the pandemic and post-pandemic must be centered on calling the state to account on behalf of the poorest, most disentitled citizen. It is only if courts and law are seen to be just in the reliefs they order that we can move forward. And this is an extraordinary time. Therefore, the need is to understand the vulnerability of the working poor and not accommodate governmental claims on constraints and limitations. For this, courts and governments must revive a robust memory of the constitution, of the directive principles, and act on that basis alone. Because finally, any action, state or judicial, must be based on empathy. When we're talking about human rights and a humanitarian concern, we are talking essentially of empathy. We all inhabit the constitutional commons equally. And have an equal stake in it, right from the dispossessed worker to the Chief Justice and President of India, and we should never ever forget that.
0: Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Allman. This episode was produced and edited by me, Christy Calloway Gale and it was hosted by Gary Peeley. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman, and show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favourite podcasts.